If you'd open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, while you're turning there, um, as we start up our Wednesday nights again, we'll be this week, but starting next Wednesday, um, because we have space issues um, at our church, at least for a little while longer. Um, when you come to eat at 6.30, you have to leave the fellowship hall. So you can go in the kitchen and wash dishes, or you can go outside, or you can come in the sanctuary. But you gotta get out of there. Because uh, we have the youth back there, and our young, uh, young uh, the kids got a thing going on in the gym, and so we need all that space, and we don't want distractions. You know how it's hard enough to sometimes pay attention to things, but if you are a teenager or younger, it doesn't take much uh, to cause you to lose your focus. So if you would do that, we would really appreciate it. Um, I'm not sure what we'll do if you don't do that. Um, we might be able to take photos and stick them up on the bulletin board and stuff like that. Um, I know that back in the days of the Puritans in America, uh, one of the things they would do with uh, persistent disobedient church members is they would put a uh, stool in the front of the church and you would sit on it and then to the side would be a list of all the things you've done wrong. And people can come by and scold you all they want. You have to sit there all day long and take it. So uh, that might be a solution, but anyway, <laughs> if you would do that, it'd be just great, and we won't have to go there. Um, but anyway, let's, uh, let's bow for prayer. Father, we indeed thank you for the opportunity we have to continue to worship you together this morning. And Father, we ask as we continue to work our way through 2 Corinthians that you would help us to have a, a broad and a deeper understanding of all that Paul is seeking to communicate uh, by his words, by his life. We ask, Lord, that it will have an impact on us, that we may continue to grow to mature as believers, that we will not only know more about the Bible and what it said, but, Father, we will be living out the Word of God, that we will be adopting the attitudes, that we will be adopting the behavior that is explained to us, taught to us, and even demonstrated for us uh, in the lives of your people. As always, we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us, and we do ask that you would Bless specifically our time here in 2 Corinthians, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 10, once again, verses 3 through 6, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So let me kind of give you a real quick summary that I was thinking about so that we can grasp what's going on here and what it is we're trying to draw out of the passage that we're looking at this week and next week. And that is this. So again, remember we have these super apostles. They moved in. They want, they, they want to get a loyal following from, from the church in Corinth. And to do that, they know they have to kind of get rid of Paul. They want to destroy Paul's reputation, that kind of thing. So they come in, and really what happens is they start acting in the flesh. They start bragging about their experiences, how spiritual they are, uh, and why the people should be following them. That They were, in essence, uh, um, the, the best kind of leader individuals should want. And so they were very forceful, and they talked about their degrees, so to speak, and all the things they had done. And so in the flesh, they were claiming how spiritual they were. And how everyone should be really following them. And as they were doing that, they were accusing Paul, who we would probably say is a very spiritual man, of being very fleshly. 
that he was weak, he couldn't talk right, um, you know, that there were things wrong. He didn't have the spiritual experiences they had. Uh, he clearly didn't have all the degrees they had. And so they were accusing him of really being in the flesh and being unqualified uh, as an individual to lead them and, and really for the people to follow his teaching. And so they should again be loyal to these super apostles. So in Paul's reaction to that, what Paul is now going to do is he's going to demonstrate for us what it means really to be spiritual. And so what he's going to do is point out to them how they're the ones really in the flesh, but he's going to respond in such a way that he is clearly not depending upon his flesh and his ability to probably blow them away with his rhetoric and with his oratory skills. Uh, he is going to depend upon the Lord. And so what we're looking at here is really, as he lives this out, this this dynamic between how it is a believer should live in the spirit uh, and how we should not live according to the flesh. And that's this dynamic that is exposed here. So we asked the question last week then when it comes to this, because Paul is in the midst of spiritual warfare. It's not always what we would think of as being spiritual warfare, but this really is what's happening. And those who do a lot of teaching on spiritual warfare, they do come to this passage, but I don't think they do it any justice and don't really use it rightly. So we asked the question last week, what is spiritual warfare? We saw that spiritual warfare is a truth war. True spiritual warfare is not a battle for territory. It's a battle for the truth. It's a battle for the mind. And so Paul says, we are not waging war according to the flesh. What does he mean of the flesh? Well, there's three things that can be meant by the word flesh as you uh, come across it in Scripture. That is, the flesh refers to the body as we, are, as we ordinarily experience it in this world. Flesh sometimes means uh, it, it moves on from being a mere reference to the body to being a reference to the kind of thing that one does, anything that you do. Um, uh, anything that we would do in the flesh where Jesus and or the Holy Spirit are not central. That's kind of the idea. So if Christ isn't central, then it's really of the flesh. Being of the flesh can also be any human action or achievement without dependence upon the Holy Spirit, without glorifying or exalting in or trusting or treasuring or valuing Jesus Christ. So the context normally helps us to understand what is being meant by that. Uh, and we clearly are using it in the latter sense of those latter two definitions of what's going on here in this conflict uh, that's happening in the church and is also happening in a sense outside the church as these men say these things about Paul who's not there. In Romans chapter 8 verses 3 through 7 it says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So in a nutshell, we know that salvation cannot be attained in the flesh. We cannot do enough righteousness. We can never be righteous in our, on our, in our own strength to somehow be saved by God or for God to owe us salvation or for God to present us with salvation. As individuals who have received salvation, we know that as we continue then to live as believers, 
We don't depend upon our flesh. We don't depend upon ourselves apart from God. We don't pretend that somehow, well, I, I have everything I really need. I just need to add faith in Christ to be saved. I'm good. The idea is that I go to the Word of God. I learn the Word of God so that I can understand how sin has affected every aspect of my being. And so as I live in submission to the Word of God, that's another way of talking about living in dependence upon God, living in obedience to what He says. And so I depend upon God in this way as I live life according to the Scripture uh, because I don't want to live life in the flesh. If I live life in the flesh, I'm going to respond to people the way that I feel all the time. And until the way I feel is transformed by the grace of God, that's not a good place for me to go or to depend upon. And so it's, it's where Christ and the Word of God is central in every aspect of my being. So as Christians, there is this ongoing battle against the flesh and living in the flesh. So the question as we deal with all these things that we should ask is, how are we doing in that? <coughs> and probably in general, we might say we're not really doing all that well. If you just kind of back up from the church or back up from our culture and look at things in general, we see that in general, Christians are just as likely to lie, steal, divorce, view pornography, gossip, and cheat on their taxes as their non-Christian counterparts. There is disunity, pride, self-centeredness, greed, and discontent, and those are not traits that are found only among non-believers. They're found among believers as well. These things have become entrenched in the church, in the Western church in particular. Churches experiencing persecution rarely have all of those issues. So follow this. While many individuals fight against the devil and his minions, at least say they do, we have not paid attention to battling the world and the flesh. As a result, the world and the flesh are winning victory after victory in the lives of believers. We might be standing against the wiles of the devil, but if we, if we have adopted godless thinking that characterizes the world while constantly living in the flesh, what's the point? So there are three things that we're fighting against. There's an overlap between all of those, but each one is named specifically in Scripture. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. Once I start reading, you will recognize this, most of you will. It's a very familiar passage. Uh, it's going to help us again in continuing to kind of fill in the gaps uh, and laying out this foundation. So when we are looking at what's going on between Paul and these super apostles and the way he's responding to them and what he's saying, it'll help us, I believe, to get more out of what he's saying and really what he's demonstrating in his life. 1 John chapter 2, beginning of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what we mean by the world is the system of thinking it is the way of life, it is the perspective of this world, which really leaves no room for God. In your bulletin, on page five, I do have an excerpt there, which is from uh, a theological, uh, systematic the theology of, of uh, Lewis uh, Schaefer. It kind of gives a definition of the world. It kind of goes along with this to kind of help us to understand what is meant by the world when we use it in this way. So the world, then again, is a godless mindset that is composed of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
So I do believe that a biblical concept of worldliness has less to do with certain activities and more to do with a certain way of thinking. And we often talk about a thinking like the world. We do sometimes say act like the world, but when we do that, we're really speaking of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life kind of a thing. Uh, so when it comes to sexual immorality, drunkenness, those are not worldly per se. They are encouraged by worldly thinking. They are justified by worldly thinking. But again, the world system, uh, they are just simply the deeds of the flesh. So worldliness is a way of thinking, is an overall philosophy of life, which stirs up the flesh to indulge in specific sins. It is a mindset, a worldview. It is a systematic approach to life, which again leaves no room for God and his word. So we sometimes find ourselves, in a sense, I would say it this way, slipping in and out of worldliness. Where, you know, you wake up on Monday morning and maybe you push the snooze button too many times and so now you're in a hurry and you just, you're just you rushing through the morning and you want to get to work. Um, and let's say that you normally read the scripture. I'm not saying that not reading the Bible in the morning is worldliness, but in this morning that you're experiencing this chaos as you try to get to work, you're just kind of in a rush. And we just live life, in a sense, by the seat of our pants. Now, for the one who's been growing in the Lord for a long period of time, many of your uh, way of living and the way you approach life will be from a biblical perspective because you've been immersing yourself in Scripture. But we can easily begin to lose that. And if you've not been immersing yourself in Scripture, we just kind of respond to life based on whatever we think is best at the moment. And so we're not really ever consciously thinking about God, not that we have to hum God's name all day long, but we're just living life. We're just kind of just going at it. And what happens is, is God's kind of put on the back burner. Because when you evaluate your life, if you do that later that evening and think about your day, you, you may suddenly realize, man, I, man I've, I've been praying to God and asking to have a conversation with so-and-so and I was having a conversation with him, and I, I, didn't, I meant to invite him to church. I didn't do that. All these things you didn't do because you were just living your life. And so what, what we want to do as believers is we want to just live our life, but we want to do so from a very biblical mindset and perspective. As a Christian, we don't want to forget who we are. Again, kind of comes back to the individual who's married. Once you get married, your whole life changes. You no longer think in terms of I. You now think in terms of we. When you live your life, you, you are to remember, in a sense, that you are married. And so the way that you speak to people as a man, the way you speak to women, now changes. Because you're married. And no one's going to accept this idea when you say, oh, someone says, you were flirting with that girl. It was so obvious. You're married. Oh, I wasn't even thinking. I forgot I was married. <laughs> we're not, people are like, oh, okay, dude, you can't, you can't say that. That's unacceptable. All right, so it's the same idea with being a believer. All right, we really need to identify with that and, and embrace that. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In the Amplified, it says, Religious worship, religion as it is expressed in outward acts, that is pure and unblemished in the spirit, in the, in the sight of God the Father, is this, to visit and help and care for the orphans and widows in their affliction and need, and to keep oneself unspotted and uncontaminated from the world. So we are waging war against a world system. 
Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. How do we do that? Here it is. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that includes my interaction with people, what I daydream about, what I'm thinking about, everything in life that, that incorporates who you are as a person, I believe is covered in what he's talking about here in this passage. Alan Mytha says this, Christ bore witness to the sinfulness of the world's conduct by demonstrating the moral perfection of God in his life. So also, by allowing the holy character of God to radiate in his life, the believer exposes the sinfulness of the world's practices, showing that they are contrary to God's holy character. Christ also bore witness to the truth by showing men who God is and what he requires of them. So also the believer bears witness to the truth, relating the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In these two ways, the believer fulfills his responsibility of being a witness to the world. So the way we live and the way we speak is to be in contrast to the way of the world. It's not by the way you dress, it's just the way that you are. We pursue holiness. We don't pursue the same things the world does, even though there is some overlap, but even those things that we pursue that we have in common, we don't pursue them the same way. We are thinking about them much differently. Our priorities are different. Our foundation, what we compare things to when we're judging things is different. It is to be, a, we are to have a biblical mindset. And so we wage against a war against the world because the world, first of all, we were born in the world, we were raised in the world, we are of the world, and we've been influenced by the world for years. We become a believer, the world keeps trying to influence us. It's just the way of the world. It's just the normal way our culture is. Our culture definitely wants us to be like them, so to speak, to live life really without thinking about who God is and what God says. In light of some of the things that we mentioned last week, remember this, Satan does not have to control you or possess you in order to get you to do his will. All he has to do is to get you to think and act like the world, and you are doing his will. The world is not our most powerful and influential enemy. The devil is not your most powerful and influential enemy. The flesh is our most powerful and influential enemy. That's why when we engage in spiritual warfare, we're not running around trying to fight the devil. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's influential. He's not the most dangerous enemy. It is the flesh that's the problem. In commenting on the content of the 21 epistles in the New Testament, Dr. Robert Dean said this, These letters were written to address the important issues confronting Christians. The silence of these letters in some areas speak volumes. For example, demons, evil spirits are mentioned only 10 times. And most of these simply to relate to certain factual truths about demons. On the other hand, in these same letters are over 50 references to the flesh as the primary enemy of the Christian. And the flesh is only one way that, this sin, that the sin nature is referred to. It is obvious that the New Testament perspective is that the major area of conflict is in the arena of the flesh. To quote one of my Bible college friends, Satan doesn't need to tempt me to sin or to make me to sin. My flesh is more than capable of causing my downfall. Yet, once again, if you go to 
there's not really too many Christian bookstores around anymore. There's none in Savannah. But when you would go to them, the bulk of spiritual warfare teaching is aimed at conquering Satan. And I believe Satan's pretty happy with that because the whole time we're doing that, we're ignoring the real enemy. Fighting the flesh. The word know, K-N-O-W, appears three times in Romans 6, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read it. Pay attention to what it says because we're going to go back and outline it real quick because these things are important. And this all gets back to fighting the flesh. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So when you look at that passage, what are we to know? Some of these things are a little, again, there's this overlap, but you'll begin to get the gist of where he's going with this. We are to know that our old self was baptized into the death of Jesus. We were buried with Jesus by baptism into his death. We have been united with Jesus in his death. Our old self was crucified. We have died with Christ. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Why? In order that as he was raised, we are raised into a new life. We shall be united with him in resurrection like his. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Secondly, we are to consider ourselves free from sin. And he says, do not let sin rule in your life. Apparently, all these things he wants us to know, he's not just throwing out because he wants to make a nice argument. These are things that as believers we are to dwell on, to actually think about. The idea being this, is that it's not an unusual thing for the average human being to live their life and not really engage in thinking about their life either theologically or philosophically. There's this idea in the Bible that the Christian is one who lives their life differently and we do spend some time thinking. When we read the scripture, we are to be spending time thinking about what we're reading when we're reading it and spend some time thinking about it when we're no longer reading it. What did it say? What does it mean? And as we read things over and over again, we dwell on those things. And these are the things that Paul has brought up as he, talk, as he lays out this argument for what he wants these individuals to know. In fact, in verses 11 and 12, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. So we must believe that sin no longer has power over us or over our flesh, and then we live in light of that. And then thirdly, we choose obedience and we obey God and his word in, in this way. 
We walk by, by faith, believing what the scripture says about our emancipation from sin. All of that is involved in fighting the flesh. It's not complicated. He lays it out for us. He tells us what Christ has done. He tells us who we are in Christ, and we are to think about those things. And as we do so, as we let that percolate in our minds, that's going to affect the way we think, the way we act, and whatnot. Victory over sin in our lives, in our fleshly lives, comes down to choosing to obey righteousness. Remember that a believer is the only person who can do that. When you read through all of Romans 6, what becomes, I think, clear is that the unbeliever is a slave to sin. The believer has been freed from, righteous, from, freed from sin, and for the first time in his life, he can actually choose to do what is right. You can choose to do what is right. Now, we sometimes think, well, wait a minute now. I know a lot of unbelievers, they choose to do what's right. Well, not really. Because even in the good things they do, they are denying God. Remember that. Okay, remember, ungodliness is pervasive. You live your life as if God is unimportant. You pay no attention to God. You don't think about God. You know, that's, you know them not going to church is just one uh, aspect of that. It, it's their whole, whole approach to life. So for the believer, it's very different. I then now, as I live in obedience to what God says, maybe doing the same morally right things as a non-believer does, but I am doing it differently because I'm doing it, A, in dependence upon God, I'm doing it out of obedience to God, and I'm doing it in his strength, and I'm doing it for his glory. And so as a result, so it's very different. So I'm going to be able to overcome the flesh in that way. Victory, again, over sin does come down to choosing to obey righteousness. Remember, there is this unalterable law of sanctification. And for the believer, it is this. We become slaves to the one we obey. Romans 6.16 in the Amplified says, Do you not know that if you continually surrender yourselves to anyone to do his will, you are the slaves of him who you obey? whether that be to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness, which is right doing and right standing with God. So the idea is, is we know this, if you continue to repeat a sin, you continue to hold a grudge, eventually you become enslaved to that grudge. It begins to dominate your life. Now, you can be freed from that. You've been freed from the power of sin in general by Christ, and by turning to Christ, we can overcome that, but you're not going to overcome that in the flesh. You're not going to overcome this grudge by just trying harder. It's going to dominate your life. It's going to color your thinking and everything that you do. Our flesh has power over us only if we choose to obey it. We are engaged again in a lifelong, daily, habitual battle against the flesh. As long as we are in this body, this, this tension is going to exist. Galatians 5.17 for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That's what we talk about not giving the devil a foothold. We talk about not giving an inch because we know that when that begins, when that process begins, it begins to encroach in our life and, and we begin to lose that battle. That's why it's important that we hold each other accountable. That's why it's important that we recognize what it is that we're reading, what it is that we're watching, what it is that we're thinking about. 
Right? We don't and we want to, we don't want to go and start making rules and lists. That just goes back to the flesh when you do that. The idea is that we that we spend our time on what is good and right. We think on those things and what the scripture says, and we move in that direction. And by involving ourselves in the word of God on a daily basis, we will then be able to respond to people and situations in the way that we see Paul doing that here in Corinthians. Where the temptation, I'm sure, would be strong for many of us to lambast an individual with our qualifications. With all, you know, Paul could have come back when these guys said, well, we have all these spiritual experiences. You know, Paul, all Paul had to do was say, <clears throat> excuse me, I actually met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, can you top that? Now, they may have tried. I don't know what they would have said. But he could have leaned on that. And there's been times when he'll bring those things up to make another point. It becomes clear he's never bragging about himself because he doesn't depend upon those things to give him credibility in the, in, in the life of these individuals he's trying to, to help and to nurture and to bring along in the Lord. He clearly is focused on the truth of the Word of God and on this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And so for us to be able to respond to the world this way uh, requires you and I to grow in our maturing, to, to continue to apply on a daily, regular basis what the Word of God says. So it becomes a part of who we are. And then that, that then kind of demonstrates the spirit that's within me as I respond as a Christian to these things. Again, let me say this. These super apostles are using a worldly, fleshly way of viewing and understanding spirituality, authority, and credibility in the church. This will not only undermine Paul's teaching and authority, it also is teaching by example the wrong way to assess success in the Christian life and the wrong way to approach and live the Christian life. If Christians begin to believe that fighting Satan, having vivid spiritual experiences, or highs are how you determine your state as a believer, it is going to damage the believer, weaken them, make them vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one. And so that's what we need to be aware of as we move our way through what Paul is doing and what Paul is saying here. And so what I want you and I take away from this is to spend some time thinking about spiritual warfare and recognize that the battle that is raging around us is the battle that's raging really within us. It is, it is a, a battle for your mind, what you're going to dwell on, what you're going to think on, what you're going to um, uh, absorb as a believer. And, and we need to begin to address it in those ways, knowing that these tools that God has given us are godly spiritual tools that will help us and enable us to overcome the flesh. There may be some sins in your life that you, that you find yourself sometimes tiring of trying to overcome. Now, I'm not saying that temptations of, in certain areas will go away completely. But your strength in defeating those things and overcoming those things can change dramatically. To where even though there is, in a sense, the temptation is still there, it is weakened. You're, you're, it will become weaker as your heart changes. Because remember what James says, what are we drawn away by? We're not drawn away by the strength of the temptation. We're not drawn away by the greatness of the temptation. We're not drawn away because it's Satan himself giving us this temptation. No, we're drawn away by the lust of our own heart. As our heart changes, the desires of the heart changes. And when your desires change, many temptations lose their strength completely. Others are weakened effectively. And we can never take a moment off 
You know, it's kind of like the individual who goes on a great diet and they get their body fat down and they're in great shape. They can go to Hawaii for two weeks and lose all that. They may still look pretty good compared to some other people, but they understand the way they feel and they can see the fat coming back because of all the great food that they've been exposing themselves to and eating. And so you have to keep that discipline up for the rest of your life. But it's not a chore. It is not a heavy burden or a chain around your neck. It's a way of living. And one that as we adopt, we will relish in the joy of the Lord and we will not see it as a burden. So as we go to the Lord to pray this morning about these things, as you know, today is communion. And so what I want you to understand that when it comes to communion, partaking of communion is not going to help you in your battle against the flesh. This, what we do here is to take our minds back to what Christ has done for us. What he has done for us and thinking about that and meditating on that, that is going to help us in the battle against our flesh and in overcoming sin. We are to remember that Jesus had to die for our sin, for you and I to be reconciled to him. Remember that the elements will not bring forgiveness into your life. Those of us who have been forgiven partake of communion. And we do so really in celebration. We are celebrating what Christ has done for us. We often come there because the scripture warns us to not partake of this unworthily. The idea is, to, is number one, to make sure that you're not thinking that the elements themselves are going to cleanse you, because they won't. There's no power in the elements themselves. Uh, partaking of communion is not a magical thing that will suddenly make you close to God, and it doesn't earn you points with God. It is designed for us to help us to remember what Christ has done for us. And so we don't want to take unworthily in that way. We can add to that, because of this idea of examination, that if there is undealt with sin, so we struggle with sin, and sometimes we struggle with the same sins for a while. But there is a difference between the one who's struggling to overcome the sin and those who've just plain given in. So if you are an individual and, and, you, and you, you examine yourself and ask God to help you be honest with yourself, if there is, whether it's the grudge you're holding against somebody or whatever it happens to be, if you've just given in in some area of your life, then you shouldn't partake of communion because you're making a mockery of the whole thing. At the same time, if, you want, if, you, if you're coming clean to God, so the warning is this, if you only come clean before God when we take communion, then you need to hold off because we should be coming clean before God on a regular basis. Okay, there's nothing special about coming clean here. At the same time, we do want to be reminded of our sinfulness because again, remember, it's our sinfulness that required the death of Christ to bring about our salvation. And so what we do is we, when we partake in communion, we, we pass the bread out, we all partake together, but we are to be thinking about the body of Christ, the very real human body that suffered greatly for us. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was beaten as one who, who had sinned greatly, though he had not sinned. And he did so willingly because he was our substitute. For those of us who believe, he's our substitute. He was being tortured for my sin. And so we are reminded of his purity, of his precious and of his willing sacrifice. And then when we partake of the cup, we think about the blood that was shed that day as he was tortured and then specifically on the cross. Enormous amounts of blood poured out of his body. It's a blood, we talk about the righteousness of his blood, which represents the righteousness of his death. He died for me. 
and I'm reminded of the blood of Christ that washed away my sins. So that in the same way that when the angel of death came upon the house of Israel, when they were in captivity to Egypt, when he saw the blood on the mantle and the doorpost, he passed over that house and go to the next one. He is our Passover. We know that as believers, we will not be punished for our sin. Christ was punished for our sin. And so again, we then partake of communion in celebration and gratefulness to God that our sins were punished in Christ and we no longer face that. What we have is a glorious future that's been secured for us, for Jesus Christ. So I ask at this time if the men would come forward um, and uh, we're going to uh, spend a moment in prayer asking for the Lord's blessing on the elements. And I would encourage all of, all of you that are believers in Christ uh, that uh, if you are able to approach the table uh, in the way that we have described, that you would do so. Um, and uh, if you find yourself unable, don't just let it pass by and do nothing about that. You need to address whatever those things that are in your life that need to be addressed uh, so that they will not linger and continue to affect you um, in your life as you advance uh, in your walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much again for your grace. And Father, we know that as we have talked about this morning, that our greatest enemy is the flesh. And, and we find ourselves at times not wanting to give in, but it seems like we do want to give in. We do sometimes so out of habit. We, we do so sometimes because of frustration. It just, we become acutely aware, Father, of the weakness of our flesh. We're so grateful that you understand that. And we do confess to you, Father, our shortcomings and our sin. Because, Father, we don't want to live that way. And we are grateful for all that Christ has done. So that we can stand before you, dressed in his righteousness, assured that we have been accepted by you. And so, Father, as we approach the table this morning, and as we think about the bread, which does symbolize the body of Christ, the body that, again, was beaten, that was tortured, that skin was, was torn open, uh, all experiencing the full hatred uh, of the Roman soldiers and really of, of those who were screaming for him to be crucified. We know, Lord, that he took again our punishment, and for that we are so grateful. We pray, Lord, that we would not only recognize that, but, the, Lord, that we would be struck anew with your sacrifice and your willingness to lay down your life for us. So, Father, we ask that you would bless the bread and bless each one who partakes here this morning because, Father, we do so in honor of you and in gratefulness for what you've done for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.